Good morning. It is good to be with you today. We are glad that each of you are here with us. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We are glad that all of you are here. We got a lot of people on the road traveling today, so thanks to all the visitors for showing up. We are glad that you were here. I do want to thank the leadership for the opportunity to speak this morning, and I, I just want to say thank you uh, for all of you for your interest in apologetics and, and, um, and joining us in this series. In this series, we've sought to answer several questions about our faith, give those answers, and then defend those ev- answers with evidence. And by the way, guys, I, I've had a running battle with this microphone lately, so if it starts popping, someone let me know, okay? The first question we asked in this series is, is there a God? And Brother Ethan answered that question using what is known as the cosmological argument. There must be a cause for things that exist. Ethan talked about the teleological argument and the fine-tuning of our universe. Our universe is fine-tuned for life. And then he talked about the moral argument, the concept of good and evil. If moral laws exist in our universe, then there must be a moral law giver. And then we ask the question, is there really such a thing as truth? And we talked about the law of non-contradiction. And, you know, we talked about how if someone says there is no truth, you can respond with, well, is that true? And in that way, you're just highlighting the contradiction in their claim. Thirdly, we ask the question, if there is truth, then what is it? What is truth? We talked about early testimony and how the the disciples and apostles were eyewitnesses. We talked about the embarrassing testimony, showing that they're not making this up. And then we talked about the excruciating testimony, proving that they were willing to die for the truth. And then last week, Ethan asked the question, can I trust that my Bible is reliable? And so Ethan walked us through all the manuscript evidence and talked to us about how the Bible is the most well-attested to document of antiquity. Over 60,000 plus manuscripts within 150 to 450 years of the original copies The Bible is written in such a way that no man or group ever had complete control of the text. And providentially, God has delivered His Word through time in such a way that we can go back to exactly what the writers wrote in the original language that they wrote it in, and we can translate that into our common tongue today. The Bible is very reliable and accurate. This morning, as the final part of this series covering apologetics, we're going to be covering difficult questions from an atheist. And I think, honestly, guys, this title might more accurately be Difficult Questions, because these are all difficult questions we've probably had at some point in our lives. The first question we're going to talk about this morning is why do bad things happen to good people? That's a really tough question. We're probably going to spend the most of our time this morning studying that one alone. But the second question we'll take a look at is why does a loving God send people to hell? Thirdly, we'll talk about how historically Christians have done terrible things. Why would I be a Christian in the first place? And then fourthly, we'll close with, if God wants us to love Him, then why doesn't He give us a personal, clear sign that He exists? Now, why are these difficult questions? Well, so far in this series, we've covered things like the scientific evidence. We've studied the philosophical and the historical evidence. But today, we're going to look at evidence that is more emotional in nature. You see, these questions cut to the heart. 
And oftentimes, these questions require a lot of thinking and soul-searching and study. These types of doubts and questions, they don't come from a place of evidence, but rather from a place of emotion. Emotion that's been placed on us by the troubles of this world. And let me make something clear this morning. My, my goal today is not to do a deep dive into any one of these questions. Otherwise, we'd be here all day. But my goal today is to give you quick and easy concepts that are digestible that you can then turn around and use to defend the faith. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Make a defense. Now some issues that we are going to discuss today, you may have thought a lot about. Some of these issues might bring up some bad memories, and I'm sorry for that. But if anything this morning, I'd like to at least get you thinking. Think about these issues. Think about them now so that when you're put in a situation where these questions come up, you're ready and prepared to give a reasoned defense. Have you ever felt like Christianity is under attack? Or maybe you've made, been made to feel embarrassed or silly. That's how the world makes us feel sometimes about our faith. Like it's irrational or blind, but that's not our faith. I believe in a God who gave us our rational mind to use. And because we live in a world where truth and error and right and wrong are so close, they're so intertwined, we must be skeptics. That's why Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, that's what attracts me personally to Christ. Because Christ didn't just say, blindly believe. Christ said, use your mind. Think about things. Learn to distinguish between error and truth. And if we're not skeptical, folks, we're going to get ripped off. The world is going to run us over. We'll be fooled. And so we have to be skeptics. And we have to be truth seekers. And we have to ask difficult questions. That's why apologetics is important. So to start out today... Why do bad things happen to good people? Another way of asking that question is if God is all loving, then why does he allow evil? How would you answer that question this morning? You know, my best friend growing up was Chris McCorkle. He was a great guy, Brother Chris McCorkle. And he was one of the most friendliest, most energetic people that you could ever meet. And he loved the Lord. We roomed together my freshman year in college, and I was in his wedding. And if you knew anything about Chris, then you knew, you knew he was a nerdy guy. And so one day, Chris and one of his friends decided they were going to go up to Oklahoma uh, for a comic book convention. Chris would lose his life that day on that drive on a West Texas road after colliding with another vehicle, leaving his wife a widow. I know many of you have gone through similar situations, death or sickness. Bad things happen to good people. Why? And more importantly today, does the answer to that question disqualify God from existence? Let me rephrase that. Does the existence of pain and suffering mean that there can't be an all-loving God? Without question, the problem of pain is the most intellectually and emotional, formidable argument against God's existence. Few people can see and experience the horrendous evil in the world and not wonder how a good and loving God could allow it. And consequently, the problem of pain is one of the most common attacks on Christianity. And if you thought about this issue for any amount of time, then you realize there are several different answers 
Okay, first we're going to talk about free will. You see, while God is all-powerful, He gives us the autonomy to make free choices, which means that we have a tremendous potential for good. We're created in the image of God. But we also have our own human nature that gives us the potential to be self-absorbed, to be racist, to be sexist, to be mean. That's why we have infidelity in the world. That's why we have things like child abuse and war. We have this incredible ability to be so good and at the same time this incredible ability to be twisted and evil if that's what we choose to be. You know, God didn't have anything to do with what happened in Uvalde, Texas earlier this year. That was a free will choice of an evil human being. But why would God create evil human beings in the first place? Let me ask you this. Why did your parents decide to have you? Or if you're a parent this morning, why did you decide to have your own children, knowing that one day they might disobey you? Parents take the risk of loss in order to experience the joy of love. Evil is the consequence of our free choices. And if God were to do away with evil, then we would have to, then he would have to do away with the ability um, to make free choices. And if he did away with our free choice, we would no longer have the ability to love or do good. You know, from the beginning of creation, God made mankind have a free choice. And although we weren't in the garden with Adam and Eve, and we didn't do what they did, we are no different. We choose to obey God every day through our own free choices. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. All of us are imperfect humans. We have a sin nature. And even on my best days, there are still many sins that I'm guilty of. The flesh is weak, folks. And so we have sin. And as a consequence, we deserve death. And now we talk about time and chance. You know, natural disasters and premature deaths are a direct result of the curse on creation because of the fall of humankind. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11 says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. We live in a fallen world. And what Solomon says here is that even if you're the fastest, even if you're the strongest, or the wisest, or the smartest, time and chance happen to all of us. So no one is guaranteed a trouble-free life or a full life of 70 years? You know, one of the errors that the Bible attacks many times is the concept of karma. This idea that there's a one-to-one correspondence between sin and suffering. You know, that's one of the main points of the book of Job. One of Job's counselors, one of his friends said, Obviously, Job, the reason you are suffering is because you've done something wrong. And if you would just repent, your suffering will stop. And this made God so angry because that's not how he operates. But oftentimes we fall into that same line of thinking, that trap. We think that if I do good, I deserve good from God. And I I think if, if I do evil, I deserve punishment from God. That's not the way life works. There's not this one to one correspondence between goodness and the good life and evil and suffering. Instead, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that God rains down His blessings on the just and the unjust. 
Even evil people get to enjoy God's good blessings. And even good people get to, well, they get hit by the unfairness of life. You know, life is unfair. And it's not because God is getting us. It's because you and I are born into an unfair, messed up world. Bad things happen to good people. But are there reasons God might use pain and suffering rather than than just free will and time and chance? Next, we come to trials. Think about this for a moment. If God prevented pain every time we got into trouble, then we would become the most reckless, self-centered creatures in the universe, and we would never learn from suffering. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, for, us, for, for those of us who are parents, think about our relationship with our children. We bring all kinds of pain into their lives for their own good. We vaccinate them, we take them to the dentist, we, we force them to go to bed when they don't want to, and they really don't like whenever we use that sucker thing on their nose. They don't understand our reasons. I mean, why would they? How much more is this true of our relationship with God, whose wisdom infinitely exceeds our own? If we have a difficult time solving nonlinear differential equations, why do we think that we should be able to fathom all the workings of of God's providence. Romans chapter 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Sometimes we just have to recognize our limits and acknowledge the limitless knowledge and unseen purposes of God. I realize there are a lot of churches today that suggest that following God means that life is going to be all sunshine and rainbows. The Bible paints a far different picture of what serving God can look like. Even as Christians, we still experience pain and death and sorrow. God didn't inspire a quaint collection of of inspirational jingles for us to sing on Sundays. He inspired the laments of men who were persecuted and oppressed in the cries of a people who saw their cities destroyed by war and famine. Psalm 44, verse 23 says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever! Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? And like the biblical writers, we too deal with our own trials and tribulations. How many of you can relate to this passage? Guys, it's okay for us to have feelings. It's okay for us to ask God to remove troubles. Jesus did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. So take those things to God. Open up to Him. Let Him into your heart. Tell Him the truth. And at the end of the day, take a step back. And recognize that you are a fallible human being. Okay? And God's in control. You don't know what He's working out in your life or in the world. God can allow pain and suffering for the purposes of waking us up to our spiritual state and our need for forgiveness. Now, this is certainly the case with the prodigal son. What did it take for him to go home? He had to eat pig slop. His life had to get horrible before he would wake up. 
Reflecting on the existence of suffering, C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, in the wake of the terrorist attacks of 9-11, churches across the country were flooded with people who normally never attended. Why? Because people suddenly experienced the immediate, incalculable importance of God in a world that is so fragile. The events of 9-11 woke them up to a reality, to the reality of life and their spiritual condition. Events like that make people think. They start to think about their lives and think about their family and suddenly they start to ask questions like, does God exist? Do I have a relationship with Him? Is there judgment to come? In retrospect, tough times can be good for us. Now, I remember early in my sales career, one of my bosses, he had a saying he would always use, tough times don't last, but tough people do. You know, trials toughen us up. They make us stronger, build character. If you think about it, you'll find that virtually every valuable lesson you've ever learned was the result from some hardship in your life or in someone else's. In most cases, bad fortune teaches while good fortune deceives us. In fact, suffering is what develops virtues. You can't develop courage unless there's danger. You can't develop perseverance unless there's an obstacle in your way. And you won't won't learn how to be a servant unless there's someone to serve. And folks, God works in the same way. It's in the toughest of times, the times of desperation that we find His hope. In times of failure, we find His strength. In times of sadness, we find His joy. And in times of evil, we are enlightened to how good God actually is. Putting evil in the perspective of eternity dramatically changes the way Christians should view it. While the existence of pain is very real, it's also very temporary, folks. The Apostle Paul, who was repeatedly beaten, jailed, and stoned, and whipped, wrote to the Christians in Corinth, and he said, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, the Job of chapter 42 is a deeper, more joyful Job uh, than the one in chapter 1. So pain in this world can sometimes actually serve a good purpose in the end. If you look at life that way, somehow our trials produce appreciation for all the gifts that God has given us more than ever. That is how all our pain and suffering will appear through the lens of eternity. Not only will the pain be fleeting, but our joy will be even greater for having seen God deliver us out of it. The Bible also teaches that God works all things together for good. And this is what I call the ripple effect. But if that's true, why does God allow certain evils? You know, certain things happen in our world where we look at it and we say, no way, no way is there any good coming from this. I'll share one example that helps me wrap my mind around it. Let's say a baby in a church gets sick and we pray and pray and pray and the whole church prays, but the baby dies. And we're like, why? Why did that baby die? And if someone were to ask me, why do babies die? I would say, well, we live in a fallen world, so yeah, babies die. But if you ask me why that baby died, I don't know. I don't know, but I know why I don't know. You see, I'm inside of time, and all I can see is this much. But God is outside of time, and He sees everything. 
And this is what I have heard called the ripple effect. Every event that occurs ripples forward to affect trillions of other events. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And we might not know why a baby dies. But since God can see the end from the beginning, maybe this baby dying ripples forward to affect so many other events that 500 years from now, a great evangelist arises and saves millions of people, baptizes millions of people. Or maybe a disease gets cured. Who knows? We have no way of knowing how the events of today, how the events of today will shape our character in 10 years or how they will shape the character of our friends and family, or how they'll alter the path of our lives and the lives of those around us, or how they'll influence our future choices or our values. Thus, God could be justified in permitting at least some evil for the sake of the good that might eventually come from it. But can we trace all those ripples? We can't. God can, though. In fact, you even see the ripple effect in the Scriptures. In the story of Joseph in the Old Testament... Remember when he was sold into slavery by his brothers? And he goes to Egypt, and he's treated horribly. He's falsely accused, thrown into prison. But then he rises up and becomes number three in charge of Egypt. He puts all this green to the side, and he saves the people. And then his own family that, that sold him into slavery, they then travel to Israel to escape, to escape a famine. They go to Egypt. And Joseph sees them. And what did Joseph say to them when he encounters his brothers? Did he say, you dirty rat, you did me so wrong? That's not what Joseph said. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He says, what you meant for evil, God has done many good things with it. The saving of lives. And here you see the ripple effect in the scripture. You have people who did evil... And their evil rippled forward and actually helped people later, a great many people. So if we know God can see the end from the beginning, we can trust Him for the things that we can't see. That's basically the whole book of Job. God says, Job, you can't even understand how I run the physical world that you can see. So how are you going to understand the vastly more complex moral world that you cannot see? You know, one movie that... My family watches every Christmas is the movie It's a Wonderful Life. The main character, George Bailey, has a few things go wrong with his business and suddenly his life seems to be falling apart all around him. And so he decides that he's going to commit suicide. And so George Bailey goes up on a bridge and he's about to jump off when an angel stops him. This angel then shows him what life would be like if he had never been born. It turns out that life would have been terrible for many people throughout his hometown. But George never knew this. He never realized the amazing impact that his life had on other people. And folks, because we live in time, we, we, real, we never realize the amazing impact that our lives might have on others. We can't see what God can see. So instead, maybe we should just trust God to work things out for good. Now, moving on to our next question, number two, and we're going to pick up the pace now and go a little bit faster. Why does a loving God send people to hell? Another way of asking it would be to say, if God is all good, why does He condemn people to eternal punishment? Well, the truth is, you have two options, heaven or hell. There are no loopholes. There's no fine print to get us out of it. 
God is all-knowing and He's all-just, and all of us are going to be judged fairly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. There will be a day of judgment when God's power will be manifested in judging me for the way that I have acted. Now, why would someone go to hell, though? I want you to think about it this way. You say, Zach, you come to me and you say, Zach, I want to build a friendship with you. And I say, no, thank you. I'm not interested. You know, at that point, I'm condemning myself from having the privilege of having a relationship with you. Our relationship with God is no different. God wants to have a relationship with us, and we can accept that free gift, or we can say, bug off, God, I'm not interested. You see, people choose to be away from God. He offers us a free gift, but He doesn't force us to take it. We're not robots. So God says, because I respect your free will and the dignity of your personhood, I'm not going to haul you into heaven to live with me for all eternity. God's going to give you a choice. But because God is just, He cannot allow evil to win. In fact, His righteousness guarantees that evil will lose. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's moral perfection is most clearly displayed in His anger against sin and the exercise of His justice in punishing it. You see, what people struggle with is this understanding that a loving God is an angry God. We all want a God of love without the wrath. But there's a problem. A loving God, by definition, is a just God. So if you want God's love, then you have to take God's anger as well. Because He's got to right all the wrongs. He's got to punish evil. And what God is doing through hell is guaranteeing that justice and love ultimately triumph. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of evil that I would like to see corrected, that I would like to see punished. I mean, that's why I'm real grateful that on the Day of Judgment, we're not going to stand before the U.S. Supreme Court in front of fallible human beings. Instead, on the Day of Judgment, we're going to stand before an all-knowing, just, compassionate God. And through Jesus, God reveals that He is just. God's goodness is most clearly seen in His mercy towards sinners. This is where Christianity offers an answer to evil that no other worldview can. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate vindication of God's goodness in the face of evil and suffering. The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God enters into His own creation, into our pain and our own suffering. Isaiah 63 verse 9 says, In all their affliction He was afflicted. Christ lived in solidarity with His people. He didn't come to earth as a king or a warrior but he came as a poor manual laborer. Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His closest friends often misunderstood him. And when Jesus was arrested, they abandoned him. And then that's where the cross of Christ comes in. Jesus Christ bled and died on a cross to absorb the anger of a holy God. We'll sing a song here after a while, whenever we close, called How Deep the Father's Love. 
It says it best. The wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on Him was laid. God caused the punishment that we deserve to fall on His own beloved Son. So what does this tell us? It tells us that we have a God who not only can sympathize with our suffering, but He experienced it Himself. Thirdly, this morning, I'm going to bring up a common objection that we see today. Certainly was it's common in you know, intellectual circles and colleges. You know, many times unbelievers will bring up all the horrible things that we've done in the name of Christ over the past 2,000 years. And they'll ask, historically, Christians have committed atrocities. Why would I be a Christian? And guys, I really think this objection is just a smokescreen. They will say, look at all the pain that has been brought into the world through religion. Therefore, I reject God altogether. That's John Lennon's song, Imagine. Can you imagine a world with no religion? And to their point, much harm has been done in the name of religion. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the Salem Witch Trials, slavery in the United States. How about sex scandals in the Catholic Church or the the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention? Christianity has been used to justify all types of atrocities. But here's the thing. Scandals, tragedies, atrocities, they tell you nothing about Jesus. It tells you a lot about the individuals who twist and pervert what Christ taught and use it to justify their own evil. God didn't do those things. Free, autonomous human beings made the choices to be evil. In one of the most intelligent nations in the world, Nazi Germany committed some of the most horrific atrocities imaginable. Does this mean that science can only be used for destruction? No. You know, there are countries right now across the globe using technology for all sorts of evil. Does that mean that we don't study science and technology? Instead, we ask, how do I use science and technology? Will I use it for destruction or will I use it to promote life? So just because people abuse science doesn't mean that science is evil. The abuse of science tells you about the abusers. And in the same way, just because people use Christ to justify evil, that tells you nothing about Christ. But it tells you a lot about those people. So do your homework. In order to learn about Christ, you have to go to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the Bible. How did Christ live? How did He treat people? What did He teach? How did he die? And did he rise from the dead? That's what it means to be an open-minded seeker of truth. You know, anybody who's going to tell me that Islam is summarized in the events of 9-11 is a narrow-minded bigot. That's bigotry. The same would be true for Christianity. If you say Jesus is wrong because of the Crusades or the Inquisition or the Salem witch trials, you're not looking at Christ. When we speak of Christianity, we need to be 100% aware that Christians in Christ are not the same thing. Christ was perfect, Christians are imperfect, and therefore we have sin, and we do rotten things, and we hurt people, but that's not who Christ was. Instead, if you want to know about Christ, you better go to the Gospels and find out what did Jesus teach, how did he live his life, and then you either reject him because he's a fraud, or you put your faith in him. Because the evidence shows that what he said and what he did is true. It's that simple. And that is the honest pursuit of truth, folks. We need to be truth seekers.
Finally, this morning, the last question that we're going to look at is, if God wants us to love Him, then why doesn't He give us a personal, clear sign that He exists? Another way of asking that would be, if God exists, then why isn't the evidence of His existence absolutely undeniable? Another way would be to say, why doesn't God send down angels regularly to perform miracles to prove that He is God, that He exists? Well, my answer to that is I would say, well, God has done so much already to reveal himself. What do you mean he hasn't revealed himself? Think about all the evidence that we've gone through during this series. You've got the scientific evidence. You've got the historical evidence. You've got logic and philosophy. And then you've got God entering into his own creation himself in Jesus. Acts chapter 17, we see Paul talking to the people of Greece on Mars Hill. And he uses an altar that they had there on Mars Hill, this altar of inscription to the unknown God, and he uses it to point the people to the one true and living God. And in summary, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him. What we need to understand is that God expects us to seek Him. And He has shown us in His creation the evidence of His existence. He sustains us in His providential care, supplying life and breath and everything we need. Why does He do that? So that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him. You know, by looking at the creation, all men can know that there is a God who created all things. God assumes that we should know this. Psalms 19, verses 1 through 3, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. David is saying that every day creation speaks to us. That day unto day uttereth speech, that night unto night uttereth knowledge. Friends, no matter where you and I are on the earth, every passing day, every coming night, God is revealed to us in His creation. This creation speaks to us. You know, this objection, in my eyes, is easily refuted by the teleological argument that Ethan went through that first Sunday we started this series. If you weren't here for that, please go on our website and check it out. God created a universe that is perfectly fine-tuned for the existence of life. You know, if our sun was one degree hotter or one degree colder, everything would break apart. You know, if the moon was one inch closer or one inch farther away from the earth, everything would tear apart. The chances of life existing in this universe is the same as if you shot a bullet 20 million miles across the universe and it landed in a one inch target. What are the chances? The fine tuning of our universe is evident to anyone who will look for it. So we've talked about His providential hand. We've talked about the creation. Thirdly, God sent His Son into the world in order to reveal Himself to you. Jesus is God reaching out to us in a clear and personal way. It's evident to anyone who is looking for Him. And fourthly, what God has done in revealing and delivering His Word to us is truly amazing. The most well-attested-to document of antiquity. No other document comes close. 
the most widely distributed book that was ever printed. And now every single one of us has God's word in the palm of our hands. Isn't that amazing what God has done? The extraordinary links that he's gone to to reveal himself to us. But like we've stated numerous times throughout this series, sometimes the issue that people have with God isn't always an intellectual issue. It's not always about knowledge or evidence. Oftentimes it's about the heart. It's a heart issue. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we see both characters die and they enter into the afterlife. Lazarus, he goes into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man enters into Hades, a place of torment. And there is this great chasm fixed between the two. And as the rich man calls out for mercy to Father Abraham, he says, Please, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to go warn my brothers about this horrible, horrible place of torment. And Abraham replies to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The point here is that you can give someone all the evidence in the world and they might still reject Christ. Because sometimes it's not about the evidence, folks. It's about the heart. So you can meet someone head to head. You can can get into all those discussions. You can give them all the evidence. You can make all the arguments and you can dive in deep as you want intellectually and sometimes you'll get nowhere that's why paul says in romans chapter one for what can be known about god is plain to them because god has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. God can be clearly perceived from the creation, from his blessings, and from his Son. We are without excuse. But for some people, the evidence isn't enough. Most people in our world today, although they know God, they don't honor him or obey Him, or give thanks to Him. So folks, what do we do in those situations? You know, where we have someone that we love dearly, and we know that they know. They know the truth. But still they object. What do we do? Well, sometimes it takes God working in our lives for that evidence to sink in. It's not about what Zach can do, or what you can do. Sometimes it's about what God does in working in our lives. But you know, when someone shuts themselves off to God and really digs in, what can we do? 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Sometimes, folks, that's all we can do. Be there, be ready, give an answer, and make a defense, and do it with gentleness and respect. Let's go out into the world and create loving relationships with people. Let's show them Christ. Let's show them our faith and live it out. And then be there. 
Be there for when the tough times come. Be there for when tragedy strikes. Love people and talk about God, folks. Talk about God in your home. Talk about God with your friends and with your family. Just talk about God. In conclusion this morning, I know we've gone through a lot of information. We're going to do a quick review and then we're going to close. I appreciate your kind attention. So the first question we looked at this morning, why do bad things happen to good people? In short, free will is messy. We live in a fallen world. So consequently, we are all subject to time and chance. And we must remember sin isn't a one-to-one ratio to punishment. You know, when bad things happen, it's not because God is punishing us. And when good things happen, it's not because God is rewarding us. God rains down His blessings on the just and the unjust. And although we don't always understand what God is doing, He can use trials to help us grow and develop virtues. And when we take a step back, we can see God's providence rippling through time as He works all things together for good for those who love the Lord. Secondly, we talked about why does a loving God send people to hell? Well, once again, I would first point to free will. God gives us a choice, and most people choose to be away from God. He he doesn't force His love on us. He doesn't force us to love Him. But talking about the righteousness of God, you know, a loving God demands that there be justice. And through hell, God guarantees that evil loses. And through Jesus, we see God's love and justice revealed. Thirdly, I'll ask ask the question, if historically Christians have done horrible things, why would I be a Christian? Once again, we would explain how free will is messy. So imperfect people have done evil things in the name of the Lord. Instead, I would then invite them to study Christ for yourself. Don't be a bigot. Pick up a Bible. Learn about Christ. And then the last question we talked about, if God wants us to love Him, then why doesn't He give us a personal, clear sign that He exists? Well, first I would talk about how God has done so much already to reveal Himself to the creation. He reveals Himself in the creation itself. He reveals Himself through His providential hand. He reveals Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And He reveals Himself through His Holy Word. We talked also about the rich man and Lazarus. You know, sometimes, guys, this just isn't an intellectual issue. Many times it's a heart issue. So at the end of the day, all you can really do is give an answer. Shine your light and be there for people. I want to thank you for your time this morning. I want to thank you for your kind attention. If you'd like to access any of the resources that we've used during this study, please let me and Ethan know. I have a stack of books that's piling up. So let us know if you'd like to check out some of these resources. We'd be happy to share that with you. I I hope all of you have grown during this series. I hope your faith has grown through the evidence that we've presented to you. But you know, folks, everybody's got faith. Whether you're an atheist or a Christian, people have faith. I mean, we all have faith here in a few minutes when we get out on 635 and try to drive home. The question is, what is the reliability of what you put your faith in? What's its reliability? Where's the evidence that your faith is true? As Christians, we have so much evidence. And the Bible says that we are without excuse. Have you put your faith in Jesus this morning? Uh, Once again, I want to thank you for your kind attention. If there is anyone who could use the prayers of the church this morning, we would love to pray with you. We'd love to support you. Maybe you've got some things going on in your life that you've got questions about. 
Come talk to us. We'd love to answer those questions. We'd love to talk to you about Christ. Or maybe this morning you've seen the evidence and you realize that you need to take care of something. If there be one of either case, we ask that you come to the front, take a seat on this front pew as we stand and as we sing. Father's love for us.